Take a network break, grab a virtual donut and prepare yourself for our weekly rock and roll through the news. Today, the news is dominated by mainstream vendors HPE with all the GreenLake stories from the Discover event. Are they just going to call themselves HP GreenLake by the end of the year? It's possible. It's very possible. Cisco made a couple of announcements of note. The FCC is wondering if data caps are good for consumers and Google, of all people, accuses Microsoft of being a monopolistic competitor. How we laughed. But it's not actually a joke. First, <laughs> let's dance with the people who brought us. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for day zero design, day one deployment and operations for day two and beyond. Find out more at nokia.ly slash dc dash fabric. That's nokia.ly slash dc dash fabric. And listen to Heavy Networking episode 653 to get more details and hear customer use cases, which was actually a good show. We talked about mostly about how customers are using Nokia's automation to make it relevant, like not just waffle on about blah, blah, blah. So it made more sense to do that. So that's uh, Heavy Networking 653. Uh, no tech bites on the show today, but uh, if you like this show, maybe you want to go and listen to our new podcast, Heavy Wireless. Keith Parsons is out there jacking out the podcast on wireless technologies. It includes 5G as well as Wi-Fi, and he's getting really great numbers and really positive responses. Don't forget Kubernetes Unpacked with Michael Levan. He is covering all things Kubernetes, and he's on the release team and I think he's in the documentation side. So he actually knows all the things in all the places, which is quite interesting. And of course, don't forget IPv6 Buzz. The team there is just talking mostly about IPv6. You might not think that there's that much to talk about, but there is. And it's actually one of our really popular podcasts, really strong. Nobody sent us any follow-up this week, Ethan. Why, what, did we get it all perfectly right last week? Is that the story? <laughs> it would seem so. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a rarity. So we'll take it. We'll take it. No follow-up. But if you've got follow-up, hand on over to packetpushers.net slash FU, and you can tell us to FU with what we got wrong and what we got right, and uh, we'll always bring it up on the show. So if we said something wrong or if we said something right and you agree, it's useful to be able to bring it back to everybody in the audience on next week's show and say, oh, we got that wrong and issue an apology, or perhaps even to explain our thinking, which might be more useful to more people. There's around about 10,000 people downloading the show, 10 to 12,000 people downloading the show every week, roughly seven to 9,000 people listen, give or take. And so it's important to be able to come back on the cycle and say to people where I was wrong and where I was right. So do send in your FU. I uh, always love being told uh, that there's some sort of follow-up going on, packetpushes.net slash FU. Right, into the news, Mr. Banks, into the news. Cisco uh, had a couple of launches this week, but uh, particularly this one is around its new AI networking chips. We've seen uh, just the background here is we've seen a bunch of announcements over the last mm, month, two months, uh, from Broadcom and Marvell about their AI-ready networking silicon. And it was about a month ago, NVIDIA had their uh, one of their conferences, they have so many of them, it's hard to tell which one's which, uh, where they started talking about their approach to AI-ready networking, which was very DPU-centric, and also the Spectrum 4 switch. So this week, we have Cisco pre-announcing that they will re-spin the Silicon One ASICs that they have in their high-end routers and switches with a focus on AI networking. Now, Greg, can I just say? Yeah. Yeah, it is counterintuitive to talk about AI-ready networking. Just it's like, wait a minute, is, is Cisco making a GPU? What's what's going yeah. on here? Are they going to help us crunch all the numbers and and, yeah. and compute those models? 
No, that is not at all what this is about. It's just about <laughs> uh, improving, making a more dropless fabric by re-architecting buffers and things. At least that's what I took away from it, Greg. Yeah, well, I did. A, I dug up a Cisco white paper which talks about the sort of things. It's, it's a very well done white paper, you know, sort of thing that only Cisco does, but you have to find it. It's a, one of those mystical processes and you find it and go like, oh, I wish I knew this was here and it would make it a lot easier. But basically what they're talking about here is that in an AI uh, application, all of the GPUs re wait to receive the data and then compute. And at the end of the computational cycle, they all have to wait. They come to a barrier operation where they wait for all the GPUs in the model to sync up. And so if the network has a problem transferring data and all of those flows that move around the network, they tend towards uh, the, this idea of synchronous. So transmissions of data happens in mass bulk at very, very high bandwidth. So you're talking... The idea is in an AI cluster, you don't want to be slower than 400 gigabits per second because the price of those GPUs and the cost of electricity to run them, you don't want them just sitting there idle for any length of time. And so you want the fastest type of capability you can. But it's also, unlike normal data center operation, which is lots of small, bursty, multi-point, going all over the place evenly, this is much more like elephant flows from between dedicated sources. So it's a very predictable networking architecture in its way. And so um, the AI networking in the switch is about modifying the buffers, looking at ways to smooth out the load the load balancing or the flow balancing so that you, you know, when you have elephant flows, if you've got 400 gig elephant flow running down a, a you know, some sort of load shared link in an ECMP spine, you really, really want to make sure that the link that it's flowing down isn't a congested link. And that's the sort of thing that... I mean, it's just again the big deal being 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 packet lost. You don't want that one GPU that's part of this group of GPUs performing a calculation to be sitting there idle and slowing everybody down. Yeah. Uh, again, that idle time that you were talking about being so expensive, and so the rearchitecture is about yeah that guy sitting there, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we talked to, to someone else about this who uh, was saying thirty percent improvement on um, uh, mm -hmm. performance if you can make sure all of the GPUs are getting that data in a timely fashion. And so the rearchitecture isn't again about uh, doing AI calculations, but it's making sure that all the calculators, all the GPUs, are getting their data in that timely fashion, no packet loss. Yeah, you know, one of the things Cisco talks about is telemetry-assisted Ethernet load balancing. So they're actually using telemetry to improve network performance by making smarter load balancing decisions. If we could notify the host or switches if there's downstream congestion, we could update the forwarding tables to avoid the congestion. My point would be is that most AI networks should be built non-blocking. So this is a non this is a waste of time because you know the only time you're going to have a congestion point is at the server, not in the backplane, not in the ECMP spine, because that should all be non-blocking. And I still feel, as I said, three or four weeks ago when we were talking about it, is the DPU has to be the critical component here. The only way to make a fabric like this non-blocking and not to have to worry about these things is to actually make sure that the server doesn't send the data. So the DPU actually is, is aware of the actual fabric itself and is not, you know, throwing data out and going, fingers crossed, let's hope it gets there because that's not, not the way we work in 2023. Ah, mm. so, okay, I, I'd argue with you a little bit just in that when you build a non-blocking fabric, you've got mm. zero over subscription in between your tiers. You can still create a congestion point just based on where the ECMP algorithm goes. And so I think the telemetry-assisted mm. Ethernet would help deal with that problem by 
pushing data over presumably a not busy link in hmm. the uh, in between uh, in between tiers. I assume that's yeah. where they're going with that. Yeah. Um, so 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 plug me back into how you think the DPU helps with that because I didn't follow your logic there. So if the DPU, first of all, you're going to need a DPU if you're running at 400 gigabits per second. You're going to need a DPU just to process that much traffic, right? Because the existing NICs today, smart NICs, are really going to struggle at that sort of speed. If you're down at 100 gig, it's a bit more of a thing. Uh, and most of the time, all of the AI applications are using RDMA or Rocky to transfer data across the fabric, right? So they're not actually doing reads and writes as we know them. They're actually doing uh, writing to and from memory locations in the neighboring uh, servers, right? And that's how they exchange data so that it's, it avoids the whole IP stack to some extent. And this type of approach to using Rocky or RDMA is all done in the DPU. Now, 400 gigabits per second of doing reading and writing, doing direct Rocky, you know, with all the flow control and the congestion management and all that sort of stuff. It You need something that's going to offload. The server's not going to be able to do it if you're just using a smart NIC uh, you need a really intelligent handler and you want to be able to say, look, I'm getting data out issues. I need to throttle at the application. I can't just throw this out there and cross my fingers and hope it gets there. Okay. So you're just offloading that responsibility to the DPU, which is mm. you know what DPUs are all about anyway. Um, whether it's key or not, yeah, I guess I guess I see where you're coming from there do we have a nick in place from the cisco world that actually uh, does no. this or are you just, just well, making a statement that I, uh, my gap yeah. my under if you look at what uh, amd pensando and the approach from nvidia bluefield they're saying mm -hmm. we're going to build these fabrics these network fabrics where the dpu and the switches interoperate and they're bundling them together particularly if you're buying the uh, nvidia hdx if you're buying the nvidia mgx where they're being oemed and rebranded out through, say, Dell or Cisco or HP, where they buy certain of, you know, they take on certain of NVIDIA's components and then put them in their motherboard. They don't necessarily bring in the Bluefield DPUs. There is a an OEM sort of an arrangement there. But I suspect that most enterprises aren't really interested. Do you remember back to Hadoop when we were doing big data and we had mm -hmm. all of those problems in networking when Hadoop was saturating the switches? And eventually what people learned to do was just throttle the Hadoop servers so that you didn't actually oversubscribe the network. And that was how they coped with that. But nobody came, rushed out and built Hadoop-ready switches. Why is this going to suddenly work is what's in the back of my head. So who knows? Well, there is an architectural change here. I mean, if you look at the uh, the summary statement about uh, what they're changing with Silicon One, uh, shared packet buffer. So rather than one ASIC getting its own buffer ports, getting their own individual buffers. We're going to have a pool, uh, pooled buffer is how I read that architecture, that any port that might need uh, to deal with that buffer so we, we don't have packet loss has access to the buffer. Yeah. Um, so they're going to improve. I mean, we still got latency of a packet having to ride through that buffer for some amount of nanoseconds. But yeah. uh, presumably that's better than the scenario that we're trying to avoid and what set up this whole story, which is packet loss. Yeah, and they've been talking about fully shared packet buffers and purport packet buffers for 30 years. I've been having that argument and that debate. And at various stages, we you know the industry switches between one and the other. I think at 100% utilization, which is where AI networks are, shared packet buffers don't really matter. They get saturated and you drop packets either way. So whether you're using you know, advanced queuing algorithms, the only way to be sure of this is to choke the traffic at the edge and say, don't transmit it. And that way it doesn't drop and then you don't have to go through retransmission. I'm still convinced of that. I agree that that for if you've got a relatively slow AI processing thing that you've built, it's only running at, say, you know, less than sub 100 gigs, say, then 
you're not you're not going to overload the packet buffers. But if you're at 400 gigs, getting up to 800 gigs on every server, then you're going to worry about this sort of stuff. But at the end I, of the day, I I, I I know where you're going. I like this, but I but at the same time, I think it's a timing problem because of the speeds that we're talking about and how quickly you'd need to signal to the server. Can you shut up for a second? The time it would take for that to happen could mean it's just irrelevant. You can't get a message back to the server mm. and put the woe put the woe pedal on before it's it's too late and you've already got that burst overflow condition and you may have to buffer that up somewhere. No, Cisco so claims like they're doing the switch it with, in the middle. We talked about telemetry assisted ethernet, that's exactly what that is. So they believe it must be worthwhile. But that's happening at the switch level. You're not having yeah. to push messaging all the way back into the server at that point. So you yeah. can get that that messaging done mm -hmm. and have that change done to the forwarding table more quickly. I think I think we're talking nanoseconds here that matter. Yeah. Um, I suspect, you know, trying to get all the way back to the server and have the server react to that, it has to move all the way up the stack. So I speak to a couple of HPC customers and that's what they're doing today. They use flow control between the servers to make sure if the network congestion, then they slow down. It's more important for them. Even that's not perfect, right? But that has better performance capabilities than it does to try and, and endless jiggering around with the switching, you know, mm. cost settings doesn't ever solve a problem. Um, as we know, <laughs> you yeah, can ask us how we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to make sure I was right, I actually spoke to several people this week and said, is cost still as broken as it ever was? And the answer was yes. So <laughs> just yes. in case you ever thought about that. Uh, yep. So there's a, a bunch of show notes, uh, where we talk about this and you can find out that link to that white paper. I do recommend it. Um, it actually talks about how AI networking does, works and how to evolve your network if you want to find out more about it. So there's a whole bunch of links there. Uh, Cisco also had a small announcement this week. It's going to acquire a company called Exedian. Um, this is a small company. Uh, well, not very small. It's actually quite large in its own way. But as best as I can picture it, it's a digital experience monitoring or a DEM. Uh, if you're into categorizing products into a particular market, it's been sold as a service assurance package to service providers for quite a few years now. Um, and the goal here is that you have agents all around the network and you can use them to do synthetic monitoring and synthetic testing to make sure the performance guarantees are being met. It's a SaaS platform, so you have agents at the edge and then it uploads its data into the core. Um, nothing too new from what I when I went to the website and had a bit of a poke around. I didn't see anything excitingly revolutionary. Um, certainly no innovation. Dem's been really popular now for, I don't know, five to 10 years. Uh, we've seen people like Palo Alto buy one, Thousand Eyes obviously build out a Dem platform. It's not 100% clear to me why you would have Thousand Eyes and then buy Exedian, but you know, any thoughts? I, I watched a demo on Exedian uh, as they showed off their solution as an integrated with Cisco, and it looked very familiar, as in you've seen a solution like this before, the way all the metrics that it gathers, the way it presents the information to you, if there's a problem in the network, how it shows that up, and so on. Yeah, I, I agreed, Greg. There's nothing particularly unusual about the solution, uh, other than the way it plugs into Cisco's world. Yeah, uh, I got the sense that this was being acquired by the Crosswork people, the Crosswork slash NSO mm -hmm. team, that service provider scaled out networking, which assumes that there's a multi-vendor underneath, whereas Thousand Eyes uh, appears to be more currently targeted into the enterprise space. So much more about watching the internet and providing that. And it's being snapped into the application monitoring or application uh, observability stack that it bought a while ago and as well as to the enterprise and not so much to the service providers because I think um, Thousand Eyes doesn't really fit the service providers. So that would be my best guess on that. 
Yeah, that's the way it looked to me. Uh, the Acedian does plug into the crosswork world. It can be the agents can be spun up by uh, NSO, the uh, network service orchestrator from Cisco, and uh, feed information to and from that solution. Um, there was some talk of if you're not meeting SLAs on a new service that you spun up or, or at this point, uh, it's no longer meeting SLA after having been spun up for a while that you could automate some sort of remediation. Although the details got pretty thin at that point. So <laughs> I, I read that to me. Well, it's 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 like a life cycle uh, kind of a play. It can spin something up and you're going to define what that thing is that it does. So it's not something uh, magical that uh, does anything other than what you've programmed it to do in a situation of SLAs not being met. But yeah. it was a very tight integration. So for yeah, a CDN well, to have been purchased by Cisco, they just want to make it part and parcel of uh, yeah. the Crosswork offerings. They've been a Cisco partner for a long time. All right, let's take a pause mm -hmm. to thank the people who brought us here. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its data center fabric for network automation and orchestration. Nokia's data center fabric is designed for automation from day zero, that design phase, to the day one deployment. So that's all the easy tools that make it really easy to deploy. You don't have to go around and touch each box individually. But more importantly, it's got a lot of focus around operations for day two. This scalable fabric helps the network team keep pace with the demand for new applications and services gives you the digital sandbox, which the digital sandbox is a big feature for Nokia. This is where you can actually take a copy of your network, run it in software, make changes against that, against your actual network configuration, and then snap that down into the operational network, and then still getting your insights into visibility and your performance with lots of deep telemetry features. The fabric comes together with Nokia's SL Linux Network OS, the intent-faced fabric services system platform, a digital sandbox, the NetOps development kit, or NDK, and much more. Get your details at nokia.ly slash dc fabric, and listen to Heavy Networking episode 653, to learn more about how it all works and how customers are using this data center fabric in production. That's Nokia, N-O-K-I-A dot L-Y slash DC dash fabric and heavy networking episode 653. Uh, let's jump over to HPE Discover. And all they talked about at the Discover conference uh, this week was GreenLake. Everything was GreenLake. I'm just wondering if uh, HPE is about to rebrand itself as HPE GreenLake at this rate. <laughs> Uh, but particularly, I wanted to start off with looking at its uh, announcement around large language models. Up until now, I've sort of been under the impression that LLMs are going to be something that's done off-premises. It's not going to be something that you would run on-prem. And why would GreenLake suddenly become a service inside of the GreenLake platform? Uh, and what HP has announced that they've done a partnership with a company called Aleph Alpha. Uh, Aleph Alpha is a German company, which I note is less than 100 employees. So a very, very small that's probably pretty big by AI terms. Who knows? And they have an AI as an API. So what you do is you upload your data to Aleph, they analyze it, and then they start producing the AI LLM that you need to be able to run it with. However, because it's in Germany, it's covered by EU privacy laws, so very strong on multilingual. So that is five different languages today, not just English, uh, and also multi-tenancy and data privacy guarantees. So I think, you know, if you're going to announce an LLM that's uh, outsourced effectively, or you're going to you know, bring in a partner to manage that for you. I think it's very interesting to choose a European company instead of a US company. We really think LLMs are going to have so much business and drive so much ahead that HPE felt like they needed to get on this quickly, where they're not going to build out their own hardware, of which they seem to have a lot, and uh, their own data centers, and then offer that themselves. They brought in a partner for this. It felt like, let's get this quickly to market, because, geez, we got to capitalize on this right now. I think so. I think it's uh, uh, me too. You've got to have one. You know, 
Mm. It's like a Pokemon, you know, you've got to, got to catch them all sort of thing. Um, and if you're running down the supermarket of HP Green Lake and you've got to have everything on the shelves, right? You might not have a house brand of a, a LLM generation at this point, but you've got something there that clients can get started with. Um, one thing I noticed was that I believe LF Alpha is actually using uh, Cray supercomputers, so HP supercomputers to actually generate the LLM. Uh, they made a whole section of the keynote speech, the day two keynote, where they talked about how their um, Cray supercomputers, the HP supercomputers, are 20 to 30% more efficient than just normal AI clusters due to the fact that they're optimized for this. So Cray obviously has its own networking fabrics. Remember I was talking about networking? You know, they have custom network fabrics that they built just to be able to do at supercomputing <laughs> nodes. They say 30% faster inst where a normal AI run would have a 15% chance of success. They're much more up towards the 90% chance of success and the speed is there as well. So I thought that was interesting. They're sort of, not only are they banging away on the fact that everything's just wrapped in that green-like layer, that they can now bring in a third party. And that's kind of tapped into another announcement that they had where HP GreenLake is now managing containers and VMs on any cloud. So GreenLake now is just like if you want to manage your containers and your VMs on-prem, go right ahead. You want to manage them in somebody else's cloud, you go right ahead. It was really cute, actually, at the in the speech where they were, where they were talking. And they just sort of said, like, yeah, yeah, AWS and Google and Azure, they're just – just another data center, whatever, just, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it just turned them into like, oh, whatever. <laughs> it was funny. I thought it was amusing anyway. Okay, and then one last part of the uh, HP Discover announces was that HP GreenLake is now running pre-provisioned instances in Equinox. So what they're actually saying here is if you want to suddenly spin up an instance uh, somewhere in the world and you don't necessarily want it to be in one of the off-prem clouds, you can actually now spin up instances in Equinox's data centers, and they've got pre-provisioned private cloud type resources there. So you can basically just say, I want five VMs in here, ready to go, and your GreenLake will be able to transfer the licensing. And the GreenLake oversight, the GreenLake uh, overlay will then be able to just reach into all of that. So I think it's it's really interesting to see how HP is going to be GreenLake only in the future. I, I suspect that, uh, you know, the days of buying HP Aruba for a network and having somebody else's servers. And I think that's going away or I think that's the direction that they want to head. Have you got any thoughts there? It's just hard to imagine that because HP has been that hardware company forever for so, so long and made so much money in that. And they, anytime those salespeople walk in the door, they want to sell you metal and more of it in all different flavors. So to see it going this direction and, you know, it's, it's one of those reassuringly expensive solutions too, I imagine, like like talking about the, the Equinix one. I, I haven't seen pricing on this, but I'm sure, you know, if you want pre-provisioned green like sitting in Equinix so that you for all the advantages you get for having it there in Equinix proximity to everybody that you're doing business with and the clouds that you want to be close to and all of that, mm -hmm. that will be a, a spendy solution. Uh, we, you know, Greg, for all of your talk that enterprises don't care about cost, I do think that enterprises care about cost and budget <laughs> has come up a lot in discussions yeah. of cloud and cloud services. And so if you're looking at a GreenLake solution, you would be comparing what's it going to cost me to buy this metal and rack it in my own, whether it's a colo or my own facility versus you know renting it all from, from HPE. And I'm still waiting for those markets to, to yeah. sort themselves out. Um, the big three yeah. providers are running into this now where there's been some 
you know, cloud repatriation has been discussed, but but kind of backed away from. No, not everybody's moving everything out of the cloud and back to on-prem. That's not what's happening. But there is some movement to move your workloads back into something that you own because it's cheaper. It's just significantly more economical to do it that way. Maybe the application that you're running isn't cloud-friendly. Um, whatever it is that that's driving that, there is a cost sensitivity here that's going on. Uh, so does when GreenLake is being offered on Equinix, does is that going to be a, a a viable solution? You know, pricing wise, I just I just wonder about that. I think it's more like it's a demonstration of GreenLake says we've got ready to go instances in Equinix. So if you suddenly need to spin something up at two weeks' notice, uh, maybe you don't want to go and do it in you know GCP on VMW on VMware, right? Maybe you just go to Equinix and spin it up. And because GreenLake is spreading this over, you know, nominally hundreds, maybe thousands of customers, it doesn't really matter They because they can have some amount of pre-provisioned resources ready to go. Mm. You know, and it's a feature of that sort of thing. And if you're a customer and you say, well, you know, I want 10 machines to run this app there and I've got some temporary need to do that. I just, it's hard to imagine that there's too many enterprises doing things flexibly. To me, it no, feels- and you make a good point. The the agility mm. thing is a, is an option. If I want to spin it up today, because that that is that is a huge part of the equation. How long is it going to mm. get me to get metal in house, rack it, get it mm. all prepped and ready to rock and roll? There are businesses whose specialty, like rack N, mm. their whole thing is take bare metal and make it do something quickly. Mm. Why do they have a whole business based on that? Because it's a big problem and it That's sucks. Right. And so, yeah, you mm. make a good point. Mm. Uh, if I can uh, go to Equinix, who I already have a relationship with, let's say, and say, I need some, I need some green lake. You know, you're okay, you can have it. Boom, here you go. That's That has a certain amount of appeal to it. And I suppose you'd be willing to pay for that in certain circumstances. I think the other side of this is that uh, HPE is far, far ahead of Dell and Cisco. Dell's got its Apex, and I think Cisco's got a multi-cloud interface, which is still fairly immature. And Dell Apex is quite immature, and they're having a struggle to convince customers that they've got this sort of as-a-service model up and running. And they're, um, and GreenLake is an absolutely competitive advantage for HP at this point because they've managed to bring it like get in a first mover advantage here. And they've actually done a lot of it themselves. Although they've made 19 acquisitions, uh, the CEO was saying that they've made 19 acquisitions to make this happen. They're all small, tiny, you know, mm. they're not life-changing purchases because HP is a reasonably small company these days. But it's interesting to me that they're saying the only thing that they were talking about was GreenLake. They didn't talk about any storage announcements or server announcements or networking announcements. The only thing they're talking about was GreenLake, and it is a differentiator. I think they're going to be there way before everybody else. And this ability to manage um, off-premise, you know, stuff in the edge. Uh, they had a use case of somebody who's a winery, and he said, well, all the data is at my wineries, and I've got dozens of wineries out there. I don't want to move all that data into the cloud and then move it all back to where it needs to be. I just want to have it. I just want to work with it there. And so he's still there's still people out there. I think when you said cloud repatriation, here's the thing that I know that it's that things have changed is nobody's talking about being all in on the cloud anymore. They might be mm, cloud right. first, they might be off-prem first or whatever, but nobody's all in. They've all recognized that you're going to be multi-cloud for the foreseeable future. Well, let's jump on to the next topic because we're starting to run a bit long. Um, this is uh, US politics, really. The uh, US F uh, Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, is asking for submissions from consumers and the industry about data caps. Uh, there seems to be, if you read the uh, PDF that they published, 
Um, they're going to investigate the impact of data caps and they're basically asking, is there a reason for data caps to exist? Um, I sort of came away from this as two ways to look at this. Uh, data caps are a way for telcos to control abusive or excessive use of their networks, maybe. And is it a valid? And then the second question is, well, if you're going to use data caps for this, is it a valid method for user pays? Uh, this would imply that costs are lower for some users when other pays, other users pay more. So, you know, if you have a data cap there, you're saving money from people who don't use that part of the network. But there's another view which says, are they a way to extract fees from customers? And it's very popular in the US, as far as I know, to have a headline price, which looks cheap, and then add a complex, ever-changing set of extra charges that actually hides the real total price away. So uh, if you are at all interested in data caps, maybe go in here and make a submission. I think companies, if you're an enterprise, you should make a submission here as well. Well, five years ago, 10 years ago, data caps were a reasonable thing because uh, telcos would use that as a, as a flag to find people that were doing torrents, for example, doing massive file sharing, uh, peer-to-peer -peer stuff across the network and using gigabytes upon gigabytes back when gigabytes was a thing you cared about of data you know, across the network. And, you know, so that seemed not unreasonable because even though mentally as a consumer, you don't want to have to think about a data cap. You just want to mm. use the service that you're paying for and not have to worry about how much data is flowing through that pipe. Um, if you were a, a, a torrenter or, you know, peer-to-peer -peer file sharing of a Napster way back in the day, yeah, yeah, then, yeah. Um, you know, someone flagging you for that was more annoying, but you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing anyway. <laughs> yeah, and but so I mean, we all kind of knew, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The modern version of Napster is Netflix and Hulu, right? And all the downloading that they do. Well, that's just it. If you're yeah. downloading stuff today, what that really means is you're like everybody else that's cut the cord and you running streaming services and, and that, that over-the-top service is something that uh, telcos don't want to have to pay for. They've been, you know, well, in some cases, the over-the-top networks are, are, they're all owned in one big conglomerate and it's all kind of part and parcel of the same system. But there's still that tension between we provide a network and these guys, Netflix and all these other streaming providers are using our, our networks for free, essentially, to deliver <laughs> yeah. their service. And it's a lot of bandwidth, especially with the proliferation of 4K. But your network exists to provide that service. That's, yeah. Yes. You, yes. Yeah, right. And if, if, you, if Netflix and those, then you wouldn't be getting any money at all because people wouldn't need it. You can have a road to nowhere at that point. I just I just find but it interesting it's big, that that it's coming around now, um, and the FCC is actually asking questions, and they've actually got power to do something about this too. You know, so is there a point in data caps? You know, there. I, it seems unreasonable to ask the providers to provide unlimited amount of bandwidth, however much you can put through the pipe in that hmm. with fiber to the home networks and and a lot of the newer Doxis networks, you can put a big pipe at someone's house now where oh. if you filled that thing 24 seven and then multiplied that by everybody in the neighborhood, the network provider would not be able to keep up with the demand period. They just wouldn't, that would mm. not, their, their backbone is not, uh, it is, is heavily free. oversubscribed. Like, so. We've just done a, right. a series of interviews on Silicon Photonics with Nokia and Juniper, and they're talking about 800 gig straight from the router at a coherent DWDM frequency that you can yes, then just- Yes, but not evenly distributed. It costs money to do those upgrades. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to get everybody to the point where you can scale that large, where the size of the pipe that you're putting at someone's house is equal to the amount of backbone that you've got, the providers no, I... are not upgraded that quickly. And, and it's going to be a regional thing. 
Those upgrades where, are cheap. Where it's going to be... They're not expensive. I mean, you're not talking squintillions of dollars. relative. Yeah, it is, yeah. You're, you know, where once upon a time that sort of upgrade would have been a five to ten year program, this is like, oh, I want this DWDM run to be upgraded to 100 gig bearers, uh, 800 gig bearers. It's not, it's not as hard, just not hard like it used to be. Instead of having to put DWDM, uh, you know, muxes in the core and transponders at the edge and then you have your routers, now it's just silicon photonics, you know, uh, SFP straight into the router at the edge, eliminate the transponders and then straight into the muxes in the core. You know, cheap. I, I, I don't disagree with any of that other than it's more of an operational problem. The networks in the U.S. are actually not unified networks. They're... Uh, networks of networks that have been grown over years through acquisitions. And so you've got all these little regional networks with a variety of different situations. And they they make so much money and they give it all to shareholders instead of investing it in the network and then complain, oh, we didn't make enough money to actually upgrade the network. That's what we're Well, saying. I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not arguing in favor of data caps. I'm just saying it's, it feels like yeah. there should be some kind of limitation that a provider should be able to put on a consumer in certain circumstances, probably a lot more. I sort of see, see this as a the FCC saying to the telcos, yeah, we see what you did there. We know that three or four years ago you put data caps so that you could bill customers extra at this point in time. So we're here ready to take that on. If you don't make keep those data caps reasonable, I think we're going to come after you. And that's the key point. Data yeah. caps reasonable. And it should be reasonable enough that people that want to sit at home and stream 24 by 7 at 4K should be able to do that. And that's yeah. like not a thing. And uh, it, it leaves a little bit of a safety valve for the provider to go after someone who is truly abusing the network for some definition of abusing the network. I don't know what that is. Uh, next topic is Google formally accuses monopolist Microsoft of trapping people in its cloud, Ethan. <laughs> I loved this story. It made me so happy to read this. <laughs> Google of all people. <laughs> and the whole... I'll just read a quote here from this article that came from the register. Essentially, Microsoft charges third-party cloud providers extra to run its software, a cost that customers do not bear if they run the same software on Microsoft's Azure cloud platform. This state of affairs evidently follows from a Microsoft licensing change enacted in 2019. So, oh boy, we're going to cut you a break on licensing if you keep running it in Azure and if you try to run this workload in some other place, this Microsoft product. Um, we're going to be charging you more for licensing because 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 we can do that, you know, and to me, I read this and I'm going, wait a minute. Doesn't every business in the world that's got a synergy like that where they yeah. could cut a customer a break if you stick with them? Wouldn't you do that? I mean, that's an enticement to do business with them. It's just like smart business to me. It's not a monopolistic practice. Uh, I think it's a few things to take away. I mean, in this case, yes, Azure is being anti-competitive, in my opinion, um, and just saying if you don't run it on our cloud you know, it's going to cost you more to run it on somebody else's. Is that uh, anti-competitive or is that giving customers a benefit by being on the best cloud, you know? And that that's for a court of law to decide, right? But I think the thing to recognize is that this whole approach is just not a new idea for traditional enterprise companies. A major part of modern businesses is to build a moat around your business to prevent customers yeah. from churning out, right? And when startups talk about blitzscaling, they're spending a large amount of money early to build a dominant and preferably monopolistic position in a market. And, 
you know, some companies also have network effects, which is like there's some underlying factor where there can really only be one major player. So Facebook in social media, VMware in enterprise computing. Once you get to a certain critical mass, you know, VMware is the only choice for enterprise virtualization because, you know, the, once you're the largest player, it just becomes self-sustaining and they've built a monopoly position. Cisco did this in networking. They were able to get access to cheap capital in the early days, grow dominant. They built a bunch of proprietary protocols, which made it very difficult for people to get away. EIGRP, uh, you know, various things about their Sorry. CLI were very much different and very much hard to use. But I would also note that all of the current subscription licensing schemes are also a new form of moat, right? It's very hard to replace your existing solution when you're paying also for the new solution. So you're actually paying twice. You're paying once for the old solution and another for the new solution during the migration. And that just stops you, makes it really difficult to walk away from the old one when you've got to pay twice for the same product. Make sense? Well, it's like you say, it's for, to me, I, I lean towards, my gut reaction is I lean towards, that's just smart business. You want to keep that person mm. and you want them inside that moat. You don't want them to cross over and, uh, and churn well, out. It is if you're you on it. that side of the business, right? If you're on that it, side of the moat, right? <laughs> but you're not. If you, we aren't. We're on the other side of the well, moat on the outside so saying, you know. Quick example, I, I've been uh, buying some clothes from a particular clothing company online and it turns out they give me points if I uh, buy a pair of pants or a shirt or something like that. And I accumulated enough points that I could buy another shirt at a discount because of all these quote unquote points that I'd accumulated. Is that smart business or are they preventing me from buying a shirt from someone else because it's so much cheaper <laughs> to buy a similar shirt from them? Yeah, you yeah, see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know yeah, if it's the yeah. same or not. What if what if Microsoft Azure was giving you, if you run this workload here, that's Windows Server or whatever it is, we're going to give you a coupon. We're going to give you a discount, so it's cheaper for you to run it. Is that different than changing yeah. the terms of licensing if you run it in Google Cloud or in uh, AWS? Yeah, I don't know. It's semantics. The money would work out the same. No, I know. It's an interesting one. Uh, that's a really good, really good point, you know? You get volume discounts if you keep buying from the same provider. Is that any competitive? You know, I, see what I'm <laughs> see? saying? I, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like, and as yeah. you say, maybe a court of law has got to uh, got to sort that out. Mm. But the real joke here that we haven't talked about, Craig, is of all people, it's Google talking yeah. about <laughs> complaining about monopolistic tendencies of a competitor. Yes. Just hilarious. Now, just one other thing that I observed: uh, subscription licenses. One of the things that I've talked about. Um, I'm not a big fan of them. Um, because they also lead into profit maximization. That is, it's much easier to increase prices on a uh, subscription license to maximize your profits as a vendor, right? And also to avoid price reduction. So if the product reduces in value, which technology products do have less value and less relevance over time, um, subscription licensing avoids cost reductions. So as a market matures and commoditizes, um, you would expect those licenses to decrease over time. Uh, but it's not actually happening. Your subscription price is locked in for the life of the product unless you can go back and renegotiate it. So, you know, this is the sort of things that this subscription licensing does change the way you purchase. Uh, it's not just a one-off. You have to go back it. All right, let's get into our final story, our man-bites dog for the week. Uh, this is where the US Congress passed legislation intended to make life better for people who are allergic to sesame seeds, and instead it made things worse. The bill passed with bipartisan support, Signed into law by the U.S. president requires manufacturers to label sesame on their products starting this year. The result was companies started adding sesame into their products because they couldn't be bothered <laughs> trying to certify that they'd eliminated all traces of us. <laughs> now, the reason I bring this story together is because 
infrequently we talk here about government regulations and government power and that government legislation often leads to consequences that are not foreseen. And it's sort of like, you know, when elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. So when you get these big dogs fighting together and then all of a sudden you get these consequences. And I wanted to use this as an example so that when we look at AI regulation or if we look at market regulation, Google going and asking, saying that Microsoft is a monopolist, look for non-obvious consequences. Um, and that's really where it is. Uh, you know, the most obvious one is when we talk about AI regulation is that a lot of this discussion is actually the existing AI players who've got early to market are trying to entrench themselves in by getting regulation, which makes it very difficult for new players to enter. That's the same as, you know, you must note if your products have sesame, oh, that's too hard. We'll just put sesame in so that we don't have to certify that they've got no sesame, uh, which has extreme risks because these companies can then be sued because people are allergic to it. Um, and you know, that's what it is. I just, I just couldn't get over that, that the manufacturers just said, bugger it. We'll just add sesame to products that don't need it just so that we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> no words, man. <laughs> Unintended kind of words. I mean, this, this happens so often and all I can do is agree with you. And now I'm going to be looking out for products that, uh, that are labeled with sesame because it's a label I had not, we got, I just got used to the peanut, uh, label, of course, <laughs> yes, that's okay. all over everything. This was mm. processed in a facility that may contain peanuts. peanuts and so right. you've been warned. Now it's going to be sesame. Great. It's pretty weird though. People with sesame allergies say that the result is fewer sesame free food options, as well as new and unexpected risks from sesame and foods. They used to eat without worry, well, which is a bit of a thing. Um, one thing that struck me this week, though, when we're talking about AI regulation is I think that we should see innovators should be personally liable for any damage they cause. So if there's a new thing that comes onto the market like AI, like LLMs, that is actually causing us some, some concern and some risk, the challenge is that for most of these people, the only thing that's at risk is the money, that is their companies. And if they fail or fl inflict damage on society in some way, those people can do so and they have zero personal risk. I think there's room for regulation to inflict personal risk on people. So if you're the CEO of a company and you produce food with sesame in it, you should be personally liable if proved negligent. And I think the same thing should be applied to technology startups in the same space. I wonder if people have got any thoughts on that. If you have, don't forget to head on over and hit us at packetpushes.net slash FU. There's no tech by today, so we ran a little long with just Ethan and I. Drew is back next week. For those of you who are missing his dulcet tones, moderate attitudes and respectful uh, take on the week, that wraps up to news. Thanks very much for listening to the Network Break. As always, if you've enjoyed this show, please head on over to packetpushes.net where you can find six other shows in our network, Heavy Wireless, Heavy Strategy, and more. Don't forget Day 2 Cloud, which talks about cloud infrastructure. And uh, if you don't mind, please tell your friends about us. Go out on LinkedIn and share one of our uh, podcasts out there. Help us find some more people to be in touch with. There's a lot of people who've dropped off from us over the years. And if you could say, you know, maybe remind them that we're still here and still doing it and uh, they might want to come back and revisit us if they've been having a breakaway. And as always, thanks for listening. And see you next week.